Folks, today we're returning to the first half of the book of Exodus. And it just so happened to work out that we escaped with Moses and the Israelites the Sunday before Holy Week. Now, I tend to try to plan out when sermons will land. And, but you know, we had a few interruptions early in the year because of COVID and weather concerns. So our calendar got all mixed around. But I think the timing just happened to work out beautifully. Because remember, Exodus plays such a major role in the rest of the Old Testament. It is a foundational moment in Israel's history. It's constantly referred back to by the psalmist and the prophets. And we read through that story leading up until Easter Sunday. But it goes, this story goes even further than they anticipated. It's not just a story of what God has done for the Israelites, but it proves to be a story of what God will and has done in Christ. See, we as Christians read this story through the lens of Christ. Who He is and what He's done for us. This is how we understand our own salvation. How so, we might ask? Well, we see that this God is not only one who liberates His people from physical slavery, liberates the Israelites from Egyptian oppression, but He also is the one who liberates all people who come to Him. All of His people throughout time and space from their spiritual slavery to sin and death. And how does He free us from those cruel taskmasters? Well, He does so through His eternally begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord that we read of in Exodus is the same One we encounter meek and mild in the Gospels. But instead of just being the One to whom sacrifices are offered to our surprise, our great alarm maybe, we read in the New Testament that not only is He the one that we make sacrifices to, but He is the one who sacrificed for us. The apostles take up this idea in the New Testament. Jesus is the new Passover Lamb. And when we come to this table, this supper table, it's by Him we're nourished. Furthermore, Jesus' death is a new kind of crossing of the Red Sea. It's our true baptism as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 10. So everything that we've seen in Exodus so far points us to Jesus' suffering, His crucifixion, His burial, and ultimately, His resurrection. Everything we've been studying in the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. So it's only fitting then that the Sunday after Easter, we listen closely and carefully to Israel's Song of the Sea. A song in which they rejoice over their salvation as we too have been rejoicing in our salvation provided to us because Christ has raised from the dead. Not only for us, but also for them. So let's remember where we are. Up until this point in our journey, Pastor Philip Graham Ryken points out that we've been in the middle of an unfolding drama. It's been a story that we've been reading. But now suddenly, that story, maybe unexpectedly to us, 
has turned into a full-blown musical. And how could it not? What else could you do in response to such a miraculous redemption other than to sing out praises to the One who's redeemed you? It's why the passage has not only traditionally been called Israel's Song of the Sea, but more to the point, Israel's Song of Salvation. And just as this song has been the liturgical center, liturgical is just a fancy word meaning worship, just as this has been the worshiping center of the book, its central object, the one being worshipped, is the Lord. This song is about Him. This story is about Him. The Scriptures are about Him. So let's dive in this morning and see what this Song of the Sea is all about. Let's look first at these first five verses for us. Notice what Israel sings about here primarily. That the Lord is their Savior. Now, it's important to pay attention to what is said here and what is not said here. See, although Moses was the one who lifted the staff, and from their point of view, the one that was responsible for the parting of the Red Sea, although it's Aaron that's been helping to organize and and to, to, to collect the people together, this song is not about Moses or Aaron or anybody else. It's about the Lord. See, it's the Lord who's highly exalted in this song. It's the Lord who's thrown the horse and His rider into the sea. The Lord is their strength and their song and their salvation. That's who this God is. That's who Yahweh is. He is the one exclusively deserving the praise and the honor. Perhaps some people have been His agents, His servants, but it's only been their enacting of His will, His power, and so all the praise goes back to Him. Now remember, last time we were in Exodus, Moses told Israel that were pressed between a rock and a hard place, between Egypt's military and the roaring waves of the sea, he told them something baffling. He said, just stand still and be quiet. We can't imagine between an encroaching army and a chaotic ocean to just stand still and do nothing. But that is exactly how he instructs his people. Why? Because the Lord, he says, not Moses, not Aaron, not anybody else, the Lord will fight for you. That's why the Lord is depicted as the only warrior here. Not Israel. Not even Egypt. The Lord. You know, I, I think there's kind of a popular rhetoric in our evangelical Christian circles here in the United States. There's this idea that we need to be almost like crusaders in our own day. We need, to, we need to stand up. We need to fight against the encroaching darkness. We need to take back our land, our rights, our freedom. And we're so often, like a, a, I heard a pastor say recently, we're like Peter in this way. We're so willing to fight and to kill for Jesus. But we're so unwilling to suffer and much less die for Him. And yet, that's what the Lord calls His people to do. This song tells us a different truth than our popular kind of 
superhero, patriotic, super soldier identity that we so love. We're going to stand up and fight. It's the Lord alone who fights and wins. It's an unusual kind of warfare here because there's a battle that's being fought and yet a battle has not taken place. The Lord simply wins. As commentator Christopher J.H. Wright points out, the whole point of this, at this crucial moment of Israel's redemption, Israel does not fight. When you think they would need to be putting on their shields and unsheathing their swords and preparing for a long and bloody battle, they do nothing. It's the Lord who wins. This is Yahweh's prerogative, he says, and total victory is His alone. If only we evangelicals would really believe that this is who our God really is. All the the worries we have, the culture war stuff that we get involved with, the the nitpicking and and the fighting we do amongst each other and our culture, and it's almost as if we, we talk about we believe the Lord's in control and we, we say we believe that, but we don't show it by the way we live or act. When the Lord saves His people, either at the Red Sea or at Calvary, He does it alone with no assistance from us. So that's point number one. The Lord alone is our Savior. Only He can say. There's nothing we can do to offer to our own deliverance. It's He alone that achieves it. But then in these next few verses, they, they shift perspective a little bit. It's not only about the Lord's salvation, but it's also about His glory. And not only do we see that they shift topics here, but we see, we see that perspective shifts as well. It goes from the first person perspective, the Lord does this, He does this, to a second person perspective. We stand back now in awe of the Lord and praise Him. You do this. You do that. You have done this. You will do this. Verse 6 starts, Lord, Your right hand is glorious in power. It shatters the enemy. You threw down Your adversaries. And then we get these wonderful, striking images. Your nostrils Breathe fire. It consumed their armies like stubble. And at the, with the same time and with the same breath, that's, that's the same air from the nostrils froze the waters into walls for us to pass through. The images here are of unrivaled power. The Lord can destroy any national superpower. Any national superpower. He can destroy it with one hand tied behind His back. They would sing. By the breath, by the snorting of his nostrils, he can tear any military to shreds. He can put anything in the natural world into a supernatural state. And when any country or culture or regime or president or prime minister or military or anything brags about what they can do, I will pursue, they say. I will overtake. I'll divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy. Whatever bravado we hear from the world out there, 
the enemies claim, and we notice six times, six verbs are offered here. They will win, they'll pursue, they'll overtake, they'll divide, they'll desire, they'll draw the sword and destroy. But the Lord's response is with only three. He blew, He covered them with the sea, and He sank them below it. In half the effort, quite literally, the Lord wins against every enemy. So how does the Lord respond to the, to the pride, to the arrogance, to the schemes and the agendas of the world? By proving that with only a minimal effort, that really He's the one that holds all the power. He's the only one deserving of unequivocal praise. Oh, if we were to really believe that again. If that really motivated us, that we weren't motivated by fear of what Egypt and her armies are doing, all the saber rattling. But if we were in fear of the Lord alone, who will win in the end, how different we might see life be for us. Although we would no doubt endure suffering and sorrow still, we go throughout this life without the perpetual anxiety and anger that besets our nation so much. It's really remarkable. We live in one of the most prosperous, well-off societies to have ever lived with the most personal freedoms and choices and opportunities. And yet, there is a constant state of anxiety and discouragement and hatred and division in our country. It's worse than it's ever. In some ways, it's better than it's ever been. And it's, we feel worse than we've ever been. I think for Christians, who knows how the world will deal with their problems, but for Christians, if we really believe that no matter what is thrown at us, that the Lord will triumph in the end, we don't have to be fearful or angry or reactive. We can simply trust and obey and, and love and fellowship along the way, my goodness, what a different life we'd experience. What a different worship we'd enjoy. So we've heard about how the Lord is the Savior. We've seen how He is glorious. And finally, we get down to brass tacks. We hear them saying how He's just incomparable. There's no one like Him. Verse 11 says, Lord, who is like You among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? And the rhetorical answer is no one. Because he's defeated the gods of Egypt. He stopped Pharaoh and the Egyptian military powers. He alone stands in victory. And so we've seen that Yahweh saves, that he's glorious, and that no one has ever, can ever, or will ever compare to Him. That's all He's done in the past. So up until this point, we've seen all the things that have happened before. But this song continues to tell us what He will do in the future now. Now you know, church, there is a simple way that you can have confidence in God. There's a simple way that you can have confidence in the future that He holds for you. Do you know that? 
You don't look at your present circumstances, but you remember His past victories for you instead. You don't look at what you're going through in the moment to have confidence in the future. You look at what He's done for you in the past and what He's done for you again and what He's done for you again to have confidence that the God who has consistently been good to you in the past will be good for you in the future. How easy it is for us to worry and, and have concerns and lose sleep and stress eat and do all the things that we do because we're not sure that the future holds anything good for us. But if we look at the past and we remember, we were just as in dire straits back then. We, we had terrible sicknesses back then. Awful surgeries back then. Terrible breaking relationships. Financial crises back then. And here we stand today. We remember that through all of those moments, the Lord brought us through. And so we can look forward with confidence. We can look to our past with gratitude. And so look to our future with hope. And verse 13 is a major pivot point for us here. Now that all this has happened for Israel, what will happen next? And we get a little poem within a poem. We read in verse 13 at the beginning, with faithful love, the Lord will lead His people. And towards the end, with unfailing strength, the Lord will guide them home. And I know none of us are Hebrew readers here, but there's a, there's a little bit of a, a rhyme going on here. And the first, it's, Behezdeka, and then at the last it's Beazeka. There's something going on there. So, in other words, what the songwriter, the author is trying to get us to notice is don't miss this. God's love is his strength, and God's strength is his love. We can be sure that God loves us because God and his strength acts for us. And because God in His strength acts for us, we can be certain that He loves us. Who are the people for whom He loves and for whom He acts? It's His redeemed people we read. And what does He do for them? He brings them into this promised holy land. So here's the big idea. This holy God redeems and makes this people holy to take them into a holy dwelling place. That's the goal not only for Israel, but also for us as Christians as well. This holy God redeems this wayward people to make them a kingdom of priests sharing God's grace and glory wherever He may lead us in this life. And verse 14-16 through tells us how the nations respond. How the world responds to this. Initially, after everything that God has done for Israel, they respond with fear. Anguish will seize Philistia. Terror will grip Edom. Moab's leaders will tremble. Canaan's citizens will panic. And we know from the book of Joshua that comes just a few years down the road from this event, Rahab confesses 
within the walls of Jericho that her people have heard about this God and what He's done in Egypt. And they're so afraid of Him. But we're reminded of the way that Rahab responds that this fear that the nation feels over Israel's God is also an opportunity for them to come humbly, repentantly, so that even though they were once strangers, that He will be their God too. And they will be His people. See, the point power, ultimately, even not just for Israel, but for the nations, is so that they'll come to Him and find their life and rest in Him. He terrifies them perhaps out of their idolatry, out of their wickedness. But it's not so He can torment and discourage and plague and belittle them. It's so that they can see the falseness of the, of the culture and the world that they're placing all their hopes in and see the truth of His power and experience His love and mercy for them. Remember, at the very end of the Bible story, John tells us in Revelation 21, the nations will walk by His light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into His kingdom. See, God's plan has always been to bring all the peoples of the world whatever tribe or tongue or ethnicity or nationality, whatever, to bring all of them back into fellowship with Him. And that's the ultimate goal. Now, along the way, and we see this in Israel's subsequent history, the Lord has to send Israel as a judgment on the wickedness of the nations in the Promised Land. You know, there's terrible things happening terrible political oppression, child sacrifice, all sorts of really nasty stuff happening. And the Lord sends Israel as an instrument of judgment. But unless you think He plays favorites or He's partial, when Israel becomes just like the nations around them, He raises up Assyria and Babylon and Persia to do to Israel what they have become in their enemy. All of this we have to read through this lens. However the Lord guides nations and allows them to, to battle back and forth with one another, we must be reminded that ultimately the goal is this. We read in this song, it's the Lord who plants His people. He gives them a land for their possession and His presence is their home. It's their sanctuary. And it's He who will reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate goal. It's not about Israel going out there and, and establishing a perfect state. It's not about any of the other Gentile nations coming up with a better plan or a better culture than Israel. No, it's the Lord who plants. And it's the Lord who gives the growth. And sometimes He has to do a little weeding with society. Sometimes He has to set things straight. But ultimately, it's He who will reign forever and ever. Verse 19 recaps what this has been about. What this song of the sea uh, and why it's called that. When Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and horsemen went into the sea after the Israelites, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. And the Israelites walked through on dry ground. That's the recap of what we've been singing about. 
But then at the very end of the passage, we're told who's leading the singing. She's described as the prophetess Miriam. Aaron's sister. Now, it's, she's Moses' sister too, but she's known to the people at this point because Moses has been MIA for so long as Aaron's sister. And she plays a prominent uh, teaching role even in Israel's life. That's what the word prophetess means, like Deborah or Anna's, uh, like a, a great teacher among the people. And she comes out dancing with a tambourine and she's leading Israel's women to join in with her, celebratory dancing and playing as she sings. I know that makes us blush as Baptists, but she in some way worships through dancing and with a rock and roll tambourine. Sing to the Lord, for He's highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. And so, what's so striking about this is it seems like it could be a little throwaway fact. Oh, well, Miriam comes on the scene and she's the one leading it. But I think what it shows us is it brings this story for us full circle. Now, you remember the last place we saw Miriam in this book? It was all the way, 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 way back at the beginning when she was just a child. She was hiding Moses in the Nile River, away from Pharaoh's death squads. And, and there she was unnamed. We didn't know who she was, but she was bravely guarding Moses from Pharaoh's murderous regime. Just a little poor slave girl. And then she has this encounter with the princess of Egypt. And we know the story from there. But now, these many years later, think of how her situation has changed. She's just a poor, unknown slave girl, but now she's the prophetess Miriam. And she's now leading not only the women of Israel, but all of the congregation of Israel, joyfully guiding them to worship the God who has destroyed all of Pharaoh's evil. The, the Pharaoh's power, I know there's a couple different Pharaohs we mean Nexus, but the power of the, of, of the, Egyptian throne to toss people into the sea, to the river and let them drown. We see the irony is God has now brought those people into the sea and let them drown. But think of how she is only one of many servants, one of many women we see in the story through whom God has worked so powerfully. Jochebed, that's their mother, Pharaoh, or um, Moses and Aaron and and Miriam's mother, and then the midwife, Shifra and Puah, and then even Moses' own um, uh, pagan wife, Zipporah, who saves him. We read this strange detail, the Lord was going to kill Moses or their son, and Zipporah saves them. And, and even Pharaoh's own daughter, who we don't know her name, they have all saved the day at some point. And what this reminds us of is that God, what God has always been about in these stories, and through the most unlikely ways, and maybe through the most unlikely people, the Lord has always been about saving. Just think about what we talked about last week on Easter Sunday. Through the most unlikely person in the story so far, through Mary Magdalene, the Lord Jesus appears and commissions her to go 
and announce the good news to the apostles that Christ is risen from the dead. And through them, they have preached that also to us that Christ is risen from the dead. This is the God of our salvation. Whether we read of Him in the Exodus or the Gospels, this is who He is. He is the God that saves. Jesus' name means Yahweh will save His people. That's always who He's been. That's always who He will be. And so we sing to Him, church, because He's highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider. He has thrown death and sin down into the sea forever. Let's pray. Lord, make this song of the sea sing in our hearts that You alone are glorious, that You alone are our Savior, that You alone are God. And may we see this all through Your Son, our Savior, and whose name we now pray. Amen.